0: So we are continuing in our series in Revelation this morning. We're going to look at chapter 12 today, and this has been a challenge. So I was sitting there listening to these songs and thinking, man, I just feel totally inadequate, and if I had to use a word, unworthy, and then we get to the last song, and I think, yep, that confirms it. I am completely unworthy to present this, but that's my charge. So we're going to try to go through this this morning as best we can. Um, and as, as promised last week, we get into chapter 12 and things start to change up a little bit. Um, we've gone through 11 chapters, we've covered a lot of ground, and it kind of shakes out a little bit like this. We've, there are four series of seven meshe- messages or visions throughout the book of Revelation. We've covered seven letters to the churches, seven seals on the scroll, seven trumpets and then we're going to get to the seven bowls but you'll notice there's a gap here 8 through 11 and then this gap until we get to the seven bowls now in our view in our understanding these various judgments the the seals and the trumpets the bowls even they they have occurred they are still occurring they're going to continue to occur until Jesus' final return. Because God is warning us. He continues to warn his creation. He continues to call us to repentance. So these judgments are given as a sign of God's, well, his displeasure with the wholesale acceptance of sin, his displeasure at the wholesale rejection of him as creator. And that just continues this separation between God and his creation, which he has been trying to overcome. So you can look at this in one of two ways. These judgments really demonstrate God's loving kindness towards us because he keeps giving us chances. He keeps calling us to repentance. But then it shows us his wrath also as he does punish those who continue to rebel against him. We looked at at Romans 1 last week. Um, It says that God's wrath is, has been revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. So all these different judgments are really God's way of getting men to see the truth. But it seems like the more God reveals about himself, the more the world or the more mankind runs in the opposite direction. Which is why the church, which is why the body of believers, is called to persevere and endure and overcome the world. And throughout history... We haven't gone into a lot of detail in this, but we can. Throughout history, you can see that there are these, these periods of, of uh, broad religious freedom and expansion of the church. And that's often followed by periods of extensive persecution. We're seeing these judgments play out in real life. But we're still at this gap here between the, the trumpets and the bowls. So, it's, so chapter 12 and 13 are, are different, but not these chapters 12, 13 and 14 they kind of take a, a big step back from what we've already looked at what we're going to look at uh and, and maybe not a step back but maybe a step up or like a helicopter lift up we're going to see this big picture view of what's going on they're going to show us that what we're engaged in is a spiritual battle and it's going to show it to us from a spiritual perspective we're finally being given kind of a glimpse behind the curtain so we live on this planet. We live on this earth. We feel the effects of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. Chapters 12 and four, 12 through 14 show us the causes, what's really going on to bring on these effects. So these three chapters really tell a story. This, this is a narrative we're going to be looking at. And it's not a different story. It's just a slightly different perspective on the story we've already been looking at. So if you still have your handy dandy handout from some time back, we've covered all of this stuff so far. The seals of trumpets now we're in this section here, chapters 12 through 14 before we get to the bowls, and all of this stuff is contained in the next 3 chapters. Now since this is still an apocalyptic vision, we might expect that this story that's going to be revealed is told in a highly symbolic fashion. And it absolutely is. You're going to hear, we're going to read about dragons and beasts and pregnant women and narrow escapes and desert hideouts. And it's all fascinating. It's all unusual. It's a bit weird. But we're not going to get caught up in the weeds. We're not going to look at all of these symbols and all this imagery and trying to exhaustively break it down into every minutia of detail we're going to stay focused on the story, the big picture that's behind it all. Now some, some commentators suggest that chapters 12 through 14, that this may be the most pivotal section of the whole book. That this, is, this section is the key to understanding the apocalypse. And we're being, being shown this, this from a different perspective. This is an angle to the story that really is well above our pay grade. We shouldn't have any idea of what's going on here. And yet... God saw fit to let us in on some of the details. I think to help us be better prepared. To help us better understand this battle that we are fighting. The battle that Jesus has fought and won and as Christ followers we will also win even though it may not look like it or feel like it. This perspective is going to help us fight the battle that may well cause us pain and and suffering, but we will be better prepared to endure and overcome. So I'm going to start, and in place of a regular opening prayer, I'm just going to start by rereading the prologue, the first couple of verses in the book of Revelation. First three verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things which must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to a servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And here's the part that should apply to us. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. All right, let's jump in. Revelation 12, verse 6, verses. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. This part's pretty self-explanatory. Let's just move on to the... <clears throat> so, <laughs> we've gone through the seals and the trumpets, and then we get to this, So we start reading this section, and perhaps our first really in tune spiritual question is what in the wide wide world of sports is going on here and what does this have to do with anything else that we've looked at thus far so I'm going to remind you this, this is a story that's being told here now we're given this, we're given this narrative picture of what's going on and, and any good story has a plot line right? it's got a cast of characters there's, there's some dramatic tension involved and then hopefully there's a resolution or there's an ending to the story I mean ideally a happily ever after kind of ending um, but there's an ending and so this one starts with a cast of characters and it introduces us to the main players here but the first thing I want you to see is it starts off with a great sign appeared in heaven Now, that's a really interesting word in fact the sign is mentioned twice there are two signs in this text the Greek word that's used here for sign appears in the New Testament 77 times, and 50 of those times it's translated as sign, but 23 times it's translated as miracle. So this should give us a clue that this is something of significance here. This is not like what we think of a sign, you know, dead end or primitive road. It's not, it's not just a marker. There's something of significance that's going to happen here. And the first sign revealed to us was, or it appeared as, A woman who is arrayed in this cosmic light, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she is in agony. It says she's in the midst of birth pains. So this is a sign, but it seems like a very specific sign. It's a very weirdly specific sign, which requires just a little bit of work to understand. So, as expected, there are any number of interpretations about what this means. One of the more common ideas is that this description, what's described here, this woman in in birth pains, this is a description of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, this is the standard interpretation among most Catholics, for example, and lots of others, too, And as we read through this, maybe that's our initial gut reaction as well. I mean, it kind of makes sense, right? We know this is a story about Jesus and the devil, and so why wouldn't this be Mary? But when we look at the language, when we consider the use of language, and it's very intentional use of language, I think a slightly different picture emerges. Not unrelated entirely, just a little bit different. For example... Perhaps, as I read this, you recognize the phrase, sun, moon, and stars under her feet. And that probably caused horrible flashbacks of our study in Genesis several years ago. And in chapter 37 of Genesis, Joseph had a dream. And his dream was these stars, sun, moon, and stars, bowing before him. And we're told that these cosmic features, these sun, moon, and stars, they actually specifically refer to his 11 brothers. There were 11 stars bowing before him. So the 11 brothers plus Joseph, in general terms, they go on to be transformed into the nation of Israel. So that reference in Genesis was a very specific reference to Israel. The exact same language that was used in Genesis is used here. I don't think we should ignore that. And if we flash forward just a little bit more to the book of Micah, we read, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brother shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the end of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Now this seems pretty clearly a prophecy about the coming Messiah. He's going to be born in Bethlehem, but not yet. This is still a ways away. But in the meantime, this message for Israel, who at this point in their history has been judged by God, has been exiled, has been captured, has been released, has been blessed by God, has been judged by God, has been captured and released, and they've gone through this pattern over and over. But it describes Israel as expectantly awaiting the birth of the Messiah. So I think there's a pretty compelling scriptural argument that this sun, moon, and stars description in Revelation 12, at least in part describes the saints of Israel. Not every Jew. I mean, Micah says, those who find strength in the Lord. Those who worship the majesty of God. Those who believed in the coming Messiah. Now, the woman in chapter 12 is also described as having a crown of 12 stars on her head. I think this reference is best understood within the book of Revelation. If you remember back to the early letters to the churches... Uh, In chapters 2 and 3, the churches in Smyrna and in Philadelphia are both promised that if you stand fast, if you patiently endure, you will be rewarded with the crown of life. So the faithful, we're told, the the, the believers, the, the perseverers, these in the modern age, the New Testament age, those who persevere and endure will be given crowns. So the crown... Perhaps represents believers in the modern church era, those who follow Jesus. And her crown has 12 stars. If you have your other handy dandy handout of numbers and meanings, you'll see the 12 refers to completed order or the people of God. So I think the combination of these images, presented symbolically as a woman, suggests that the woman is the church. Comprised of Old Testament believers as well as New Testament believers. All of those who throughout time have been faithful followers of Christ. And I don't think this language is necessarily random of the church being described as a woman. Remember, in other places, the church is described as a bride. This is consistent. Now, after that initial description of the woman, we come to the part about crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So if, if the woman is the church, and I think what's being described here is the history of these believers. It encompasses both the Old and New Testament. There's this long continuum, this long collection of saints throughout the ages who have suffered and died and experienced persecution for the cause of God and his Christ. They cry out in pain and agony. In the Old Testament, they patiently awaited the birth of the Messiah. In the New Testament, they're patiently awaiting the return of the Messiah. It works. In both cases. So I think this image applies, manages to apply to all of those groups. All Christians for all times were patiently awaiting the Messiah or impatiently waiting the Messiah. So this is just the first character in our story. The most likely and I think textually consistent understanding is that the woman represents the church. Now, the second sign, or the second character in our drama, this one is easier. A great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head, seven diadems. Well, we know who the dragon is. We have no clue what the rest of it means, but we know who the dragon is. Now, the most common term for Satan in the book of Revelation, the most common term used is dragon. 13 times. Satan is used 8 times, the devil 5 times, and the serpent 4 times. And chapter 12 manages to use almost all of those. And no matter which of the names is being used, they're all bad. There is no, oh, this is the better part of Satan. Let's just call him the devil. They're all bad. They all basically mean the same thing. And I think that the, the, the reliance on dragon, that's used more than any other name. I mean, this is an apocalyptic book, after all, right? Dragon just sounds more terrifying. It sounds more ominous. But they all basically mean the same thing. In Isaiah 27.1, uh, that verse uses Leviathan and serpent and dragon all interchangeably. So dragon, serpent, devil, it always refers to something evil, and here he's even referred to as the red dragon. Not really sure why. Maybe the red indicates rage. You know how probably not you guys, but I might get a little red in the face if I'm mad about something. You know, Maybe it's anger. Uh, m- maybe it's blood. We don't really know. He's just the red dragon. But this dragon has seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems, or, or crowns. And again, if you refer to your handy little number chart, seven refers to completeness, and ten to wholeness. But since the dragon, the serpent, is evil, The numbers really tell us they highlight the extreme and complete evilness of this dragon. He's as bad as it gets. I mean, if if God is ultimate holiness, then the dragon is ultimate evilness. And not only is the dragon pure evil, but the description of multiple heads and horns and diadems, that just tells us how powerful, how powerfully evil this dragon is. We'll look at this more over the next week also. In, in Daniel 7 Daniel has a vision and he sees a beast coming out of the sea uh, and in Daniel's vision that his beast had four heads and that four headed beast was given power a significant amount of power with four heads. This one has seven. Now if there's some correlation between number of heads and amount of power this one's bigger badder, more evil The beast in Daniel's dream also had ten horns, and here we have ten horns. I don't think that's coincidental. I think we were given pictures of the same spiritual conflict in Daniel's day, and here we are in the new church age. It's the same beast, same serpent, same dragon, same battle. Now, this is one of those areas. I'm sure you've all heard. This is one of those areas where people can get caught up in the details. We can spend lots of time trying to figure out who these heads are or what the horns mean or which country this must represent. I mean, we all know it's Russia, right? But which of these countries is represented by these evil states? We can get really caught up in the details and lose the forest for the trees. We can miss the story that's being told here. I mean, the details are interesting, but it's the story that matters most. We'll talk about this more over the next chapter too also. But in short, I'm just going to say now that the head typically symbolizes wisdom. So we're being shown this is a a wise dragon, a wise serpent. Horns symbolize power. He's going to be powerful. And diadems or crowns symbolize influence or authority over others. When we get into the next chapter where we look at the beasts that come alongside to help the dragon, we'll see this fleshed out in more detail. So we're not going to spend a lot of time attempting to decode the various details of this vision. I think we're being given this image to help us understand the pervasive power of the enemy. We need to be on our toes. We need to understand the battle that's taking place. The heads and the horns, as we'll see, tell us that this dragon doesn't work alone. He's got this system. He works through kings and kingdoms. He works through authority structures and governments, through false teaching and deceit. We'll see reference to more of this as we go along too. But for now, I think we're just supposed to understand that this is the true enemy of God and the enemy of the church. But then it gets a little bit more complicated in the what-does-this-mean sense. The next verse says, His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. More often than not, in our modern church era, this verse is understood to be a description, an exceptionally brief description of the fall of Satan and how he took a third of the angels with him to become demons. Now, we can't rule this interpretation out. We'll see it come up again a time or two. But it seems like an odd place to inject that kind of information in the middle of this context without any more detail being provided. uh, That understanding seems out of place a little bit. It could be referring to something else. But if we go to Daniel again, we see in, in Daniel 8, chapter 10, Daniel describes a very similar scene. It says, It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. This is part of a larger vision That Daniel has. And over the years, the vast majority of scholars believe that Daniel's vision was fulfilled when Antiochus took power, and within a few years, he had killed thousands and thousands of Jews. They were taken and trampled. Well, if that's true, then the stars and the host refer to the faithful, God fearing Jews who were destroyed at the time. And that seems confirmed with the next verse, Daniel twelve three, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So if we allow Scripture to inform Scripture, it seems more likely that what's being described here is the fact that the dragon is going to persecute and torment and even kill the faithful. And when it says one-third... Again, we're not really heavy on literal understanding of numbers. I think that just represents there's a wide scale persecution of the church throughout the ages. This seems to be more in context to me with the major theme of the section, which is how the dragon attempts to destroy Jesus. He's going to go after Jesus and his church. So the dragon stood before the woman, before the church the great body of believers throughout the ages. He tried to destroy the early believers. He tried to destroy Israel on any number of occasions so that he could prevent the birth of the Messiah. And if not prevent the birth, then maybe the text says devour the child. I mean, quickly destroy him before he can do anything of significance. And remember, Satan used Herod to destroy a bunch of babies trying to wipe out Jesus. I mean, it doesn't get a whole lot more evil than that. But the Lord's plan prevailed. Mary gave birth to a male child. The woman gave birth to a male child. Jesus was born, and he was born to rule the nations with a rod of iron. This picture of kind of an unbreakable power. And the dragon could not destroy the child. Instead, it says, the child, Jesus, was caught up to God and to his throne. I mean, this seems to describe the fact that Jesus was killed, but did not stay dead. He was caught up. He was ascended up to heaven, up to his throne. He will come back to claim his kingdom. And since the dragon could not destroy Jesus, he set about trying to destroy his church. But the woman, the church, fled into the wilderness. This is another symbolic image, it it, it should remind us of the Exodus. The nation of Israel sought to escape the clutches of Pharaoh and they, they ran off into the desert. They ran off into the wilderness. During which time they were totally dependent on God. He made water come from a rock. He, he had manna rain down from heaven. He led them with a cloud and, and with fire. God provided for them and he cared for them. Now for many Christians throughout the world throughout the ages, not so much in our country, but around the world they have been and are being persecuted. Scattered killed, but God has always managed to maintain a faithful remnant. That's a common theme throughout the Old Testament. God never lets the church be stamped out. Even in the wilderness of persecution, God has prepared a way. He's preparing a way. Now we can also get caught up in the mention of the 1,260 days and what does that mean specifically and when does it start and when does it end and are there snacks? There's all kinds of things that could come up in that discussion But again, we've already discussed, we we don't really take those numbers literally. It just makes more sense not to, I think. In general terms, and in keeping with the big picture of this story, I think that 1,260 days just refers to this period of the church that's going to experience suffering and persecution and trial. And we're given a number because it does have a beginning and an end. It's a finite period of time. Israel had 40 literal years in the desert. For the church age, we have 1,260 days that represents a longer period of time, as it turns out. But it's not in eternity. There will be an end to this period of time. So, those six verses give us this story in a nutshell, kind of a complicated, layered story. But Satan, the, the devil, the dragon, is the enemy of God. He tried to destroy Jesus both before his birth and after. It didn't work. And now he's trying to destroy the church with some measure of success. But not ultimate success. God has provided for and has nourished the church, and it will prevail. Well, following the pattern that we've seen established in the rest of Revelation, starting in verse 7, the story kind of starts over again. We're kind of given more... um, the story repeats, and we're given more details, we're given more history, a little more drama is introduced, much like the trumpets provided different details, but similar events to the seals. The next section starts to retell the story, but with more flourish, more information. Again, like, like Jesus' use of the different parables to describe the kingdom of God. Six different times, he said the kingdom of God is like, and then gave different examples. We're given different perspectives on this story, to help us understand it better, and to help us prepare better. So starting in verse 7, we see, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So, Before the story gets into technical repeat mode, we're kind of given the dragon's backstory here. Marvel and DC thought they had this figured out, but the Bible did it a long time ago. We're given the dragon's backstory why he was so angry, why he was so determined to upset God's plan. He staged a rebellion. There was a war in heaven, and he lost. The dragon was thrown down to earth along with all those who took his side in the war. Now, this reference again, the angels being thrown down, this is kind of the basis. They, they relate this back to the one-third mentioned earlier. Again, we can't categor, categorically rule that understanding out, but I, don't, I just don't feel like it's detailed enough. The focus in the previous text is clearly about the, the attack on the child and the woman, not Satan and his demons. But now, Satan, the devil, the dragon, the serpent, now we know he's got pride issues because he staged this coup And he has anger issues because he lost. He's red. This is the red dragon. And notice also he's referred to as the deceiver of the world. We're being given a hint here as to his tactics. The serpent goes from trying to eliminate Jesus, couldn't do that, so now the focus has shifted a little bit to deceiving the world. To try to pull mankind away from God, to try to lead people away from Jesus, which is exactly what transpired in the garden. Smooth talk and deceit. Verse 10 And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Now, we're not told who says this, just that a loud voice says. A loud voice says, and it says a number of things. But I think the most important thing it says is... Now, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. Have come. It's here. Back in verse 6, we're told that the male child, uh, the one who would rule with a rod of iron, he was caught up to God and his throne. So, his power and his authority have come. This is important for us to understand. For us to believe that this power and authority already exists. We need to understand this and believe it as we continue to fight against the serpent. We need to know that the war has been won, that the future is written. I think that's why these few chapters are stuck here in the middle of the, of the trumpet and the bold judgments. Those are heavy sections of Scripture. Those are dark and depressing. They're concerning for us as Christians. So after we get through those first two of, of three cycle judgment, judgment cycles, it's as though the Lord says, let's give them a little break here. Let's get away from this really, really heavy stuff. I mean, this part's still pretty heavy. There's a dragon and there's wilderness and there's, there's suffering. But let's give them this big picture of what's happening, why it's happening, and how it's going to end to help them stay encouraged. They need to know we win. They need to know they can persevere and endure and overcome. So since the battle took place in heaven, Satan's been trying to get back at God. He tried to prevent the birth of Jesus. He he successfully arranged the death of Jesus. But then Jesus defeated death, and he ascended to heaven anyway. So now the devil, having been thrown down to earth, goes after the brethren. He goes after the church. He goes after the, the followers of Christ. And it says he accuses them day and night before God. So Satan's been called a deceiver and now he's being called an accuser. And that word accuser has a legal connotation to it. It has the idea of bringing a legal charge against someone. Now, in our day, we can sue anybody for anything. It doesn't have to be true. Back in olden times, it ought to have some merit in order to bring up a charge. There is is some legal merit in Satan's accusations and we all know that Satan likes to accuse us he accuses us directly to God it says and he accuses us directly we have all experienced this to some degree you're not good enough for Jesus you've committed way too many sins and then he will tick off those sins on our mind and remind us how bad we are You've committed way too many sins to ever be loved by God. You've committed way too many sins to ever be forgiven by God. He tries to bring us down and make us give up. Why keep fighting this fight? And we know from the book of Job that Satan came before God and accused Job of being a fair-weather believer. Well, of course Job claims to love you Look how you spoiled him. Look at all his stuff. Of course he loves you. Let's take away his blessings and see what happens then. Well, we know the story. Job lost everything. He struggled a bit. He was hit hard. He was brought low. But he did not renounce his faith in God. He maintained his witness. He held firm to his testimony. That's the same thing that's being described here. The accused which is the body of Christ here, the collective church, they have withstood the, the accusations. They've not listened to the deceivers. They've remained faithful by continuing to believe in and rely on the power and salvation offered through the blood sacrifice of Christ. And we see this. This, this is critical. By remaining faithful, by persevering and enduring, the faithful, the true believers, have conquered the devil just by the word of their testimony. We don't have to die. Jesus died. We just have to believe in that. We have to hang on to that. When we stand firm in our faith, we defeat the enemy. When when we're so sure of our beliefs, when we're so sure in the promise of the Messiah, we would rather face death than lose eternity. Because we will overcome That's what's being described here. And that's why it says, therefore, rejoice. Rejoice, O heavens, and all who dwell there. Rejoice, all of you who continue to walk in a, in a worthy manner. Rejoice, all of you who continue to hold firm to the faith. You have an eternity with the Messiah waiting for you. It doesn't matter if they kill you now. that just gets you there quicker. But woe to you dwellers of the earth. Woe to you dwellers of the sea. For the devil has come in great wrath. He knows his time is short. Now the mention of the earth and sea here is a little bit of a foreshadow of what's to come in the next chapter when the dragon comes up with a couple of helpers to help bring about his rage and revenge. We'll look at that next week. Verses 13 through 17. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus.' And he stood on the sand of the sea. So you start to see now, this is very similar to the first six verses. This is the retelling part of the story with just a little bit of extra embellishing. We know that the dragon wanted to take out the, the child. He failed. Um, we, we were just told in the previous section that he knows his time is short. And the next verse makes it clear that the dragon intends to go after the woman who'd given birth. He's now fully committed on this limited time he has to destroy the church. If I can't have Jesus, I'm going to take out his followers. Or at least I'm going to do as much damage as possible. That part of the story is clear. But then it gets into a little more heavy symbolism. The woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might escape the serpent into the wilderness. Sounds like verse 6, where the woman went into the wilderness to escape the dragon. She had a place prepared by God. It's the same circumstance here, but with the added details about the eagle wings. Again, a very particular reference. I think this is another reference to the Israelites' wilderness story from Exodus. In Exodus 19.4, it says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That's a recurring theme in Scripture, when God gets involved, when He helps provide protecting care for us, frequently, the reference is eagle's wings. So even though it may look like, it may look like this, this woman, the church, is on the ropes. She's having to flee her oppressors. She's having to retreat to the wilderness. This is part of God's plan. And not only that, but while in the wilderness, she, the the, the church will be nourished by provisions from the Lord because the Lord keeps a remnant. He will protect the church. It doesn't mean there's not going to be persecution or suffering or even martyrdom, but the church will endure. In the time period described, it's the same between the two versions. 1,260 days is the same as time, times, and half a time. Not necessarily three months or three years or whatever it's, just this period of time we have to wait this is a fixed amount of time but it's based on God's watch and calendar not ours we don't care for that we all fill out our calendars to remind us to do stuff we want September 23rd Jesus returns we just got to make it till then And God, just as God provided for the Israelites in their wilderness, God is going to provide for his church in the new wilderness. But there's that verse. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. That's a whole weird detail that wasn't in the first short version of the story. Now, the meaning is not immediately obvious, but I think we're given a number of clues the most significant is that the flood of water came out of the mouth of the serpent. Now like the other apocalyptic visions in this book of Revelation, when John says something comes out of the mouth, it almost always refers to speech or or teaching. In this case, false teaching. So if God's going to protect and nourish the church from the outside forces, then maybe Satan's going to try to destroy the church from inside through false teaching that leads the church away from God, that leads the church away from the gospel. And notice that the terminology changes from dragon here to serpent. It reminds us that it was a serpent that appeared to Eve, starting the deceit. He used words, he used flattery, smooth talk, false teaching to lead Adam and Eve into sin. In the early letters to the churches in Revelation, John had numerous warnings about false teachers and false teaching. These are messages to all churches for all times. Beware of false teachers and false teaching. And we're told here, this is a primary method for how Satan's going to attack the church. But again, the Lord protected his people. The earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that came from the dragon's mouth. Now I think this imagery was certainly influenced by John's knowledge of Scripture because we're taken back again to Exodus. As Pharaoh's army attempted to overtake the Israelites, as they fled, they went through the Red Sea, the Israelites made it across, Pharaoh's armies followed, and the sea came down and swallowed them. Swallowed Pharaoh's army. In the book of Numbers, there's a story about the... uh, the rebellion against Moses, the families of Korah and Dathan and Abiram, they were in open rebellion against Moses. He was God's appointed leader, so, so God's led them into the wilderness. He had a, a, a pro, 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 providing pro, provisions and, and protection for them, and they rebelled against Moses, and the ground opened up and swallowed them. God is protecting his people. So the Lord continues to be actively engaged in protecting his church from false teaching and from the deceit of the serpent. But then comes this last somewhat troubling verse. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the seas. The dragon became furious and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Does that mean us? Yes. Yes, it does. Is there a difference between the woman and the offspring? I mean, if the woman is the church, then what do we mean by offspring? Is it the same thing? Are these different groups of people? Is it? I think it's entirely reasonable that this language refers to both the church and to the people of the church. Symbolically, it says the woman and her offspring, but it's the same thing with just slightly different perspectives. Remember, the, the, the devil's fighting a war, but he's fighting it on at least two fronts. He's he's at war against the church as a whole, institutionally. But we know the Lord has built his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. So this attack's not going to work. The dragon can't win this war, but he keeps fighting. He keeps causing some damage in the offspring, the people of the church. And even now, we're seeing denominations swiftly moving away from their historic belief in the preeminence and authority of God's word. They're following false teaching. They're capitulating to the demands of the culture. They're allowing and embracing what God calls sin. That's part of what's being described here. So we we, we see this river of false teaching that results in the prosperity gospel. It causes people to focus on the wrong thing. The river of false teaching includes the gospel of social justice that never mentions sin or salvation. We're seeing the false teaching in the new apostolic movement which focuses on the spiritually wonderful distracting us with glitter from heaven. I wonder if we're not even seeing some error in movements like the rise in Christian nationalism where we're now putting Politics and God on the same level. And these are all occurring under the banner of Christianity. Satan attacks from within, he leads us astray with false teaching. And the dragon certainly attacks Christians, he, he attacks the offspring on a more individual basis as well. We all have stories that we'd rather not people know. We all have stories of shame and failure. We also have stories of, of joy and victory. And in all of these attacks, all the ways that Satan comes after us, the dragon is de- is described as being furious. He is out for revenge against God. He's out to win. He's out to win a war he can't win, which makes him even furiouser. Is that a word? He's even more and more furiouser. And some of these battles he actually seems to be winning. Some of the examples I just gave. And in our own personal lives, he causes pain and suffering and and sometimes persecution and sometimes death. And in some of those cases, those who claimed to possess a testimony about Jesus were really people who just wanted the benefits of God without having love for God. They were those who ultimately valued their own life above their witness to Jesus, and they became battle victims. They were part of the ones swept down. This spiritual battlefield is where we are tried and and tested, where our faith is tried and tested. Whether we really believe in, whether we rely on the power and the blood of the Lamb, whether or not we're going to cling to the testimony of Jesus even when it gets hard, especially when it gets hard. Because the devil rejoices when we fail even a little bit. So, we need to gear up. We need to stand firm in our faith, which means we need to understand our faith. We need to know the Word of God. We can all, and let's be honest, we could all read more. We could all study a little more. We could all know a little more than we do. We need to spend time with the people of God, we need to worship God with the people of God. You know, one of the interesting phenomenons of this post-COVID age, everybody rushed on to start streaming services, and now lots of people are staying home. I think it's a mistake. When we start to see regular church attendance with the people of God as optional, I think we're signaling to the enemy that we're the weak antelope of the herd. We're become easier and easier to pick off. We need to be encouraged. We need to be exhorted. We need to share in worship with other people of God. Understanding that none of us do it well, but together it seems to work better. Now, ultimately, thankfully, God protects us, He provides for us. If not physically, we're protected spiritually. But we need to be prepared to do our part in the battle. So we need to regularly assess how is our battle training going? Should we be spending more time in the Word? Should we be reevaluating what it means to be a part of a body of believers, to to see value in that? Do you feel battle ready? And if not, how are you going to go about changing that to make sure you're not one of the casualties in this war? I think we're given this gift of these these few chapters here to remind us that all of life is a spiritual battle. All of life is a spiritual battle. And if we fight on the side of Christ, even if we lose, we win. Amen. Satan is going to be defeated, and Jesus is going to rule. But we are part of that process. We need to be prepared to fight. Father, I uh, admit this is a rather overwhelming text a difficult and challenging text but we are so grateful that you've chosen to give us this insight to help us see the world as it is the the battle as it is and to give us a bigger, bigger picture of who you are that we are not left to fight this battle alone that we have the the power, the authority of Jesus. We have the holiness and worthiness of an Almighty God leading us into battle. Lord, I pray that this this message helps us, even just a little, reevaluate how we how we live life, uh, how how we see our spiritual condition in this battle, and ultimately, I, I hope it helps us see get a bigger picture for who you are, that you are the ultimate victor and says as, as deep and dark and scary as this sounds sometimes you are the victor and you choose to have us on your side and we have a new understanding of your grace and your love and your mercy for us we can get so easily bogged down in the details of life and the the rituals and the routines, Lord, I think this is, this is given to help us take a step back and see what really is transpiring here. Give us a, a fresh perspective on, on how we live, how we handle adversity, even where we need to grow, to deepen our faith, to shore up our defenses. We thank you for sharing this with us, even though it may be a little disturbing, a little, a little challenging. We thank you for giving this glimpse into the reality that is occurring. And it just goes back and shows us your great love for us.